How to Survive um, the Drive to Church. This is week three of our family survival guide. And uh, maybe that's, I know that wasn't your family, but it's also kind of your family, right? Uh, what is the deal with Sunday mornings and everything that bad that happens? Uh, it happens all the time. I can't tell you how many times it happens in, in my own household. Now, I'm here early. And then my wife is ending up taking care of all the craziness that happens to get our kids ready to come to church. And by the way, um, today is my wife's birthday. She is 30 years old. And uh, I hope she has the best 30th birthday ever. Um, she is an amazing, amazing mom and wife. Uh, how to survive the ride to church. Um, I feel like on Sunday mornings, we're making the effort to get to go to church, right? God should be blessing us like in some ways, right? Like this shouldn't be like curses, but instead of the blessings, our kid pees their pants, our spouse is giving us a hard time about something that's probably their fault anyway, someone in front of us takes our parking spot, and the line at the coffee cart is too much, we can't even get our morning job up. What is the deal with Sunday mornings? We try and do the right thing. For our families. But the hard thing about spirituality in the home is that your kids and your family knows all your dirty laundry, right? Like they see you at your best and they see you making the effort to get your kids ready to make church a priority and you and you show up. They see that, but they also see you going crazy at times. Um, they see you cursing over the car uh, that cuts you off on your way into church. And uh, as your pastor, I just want to make this very clear. That's okay. Okay? You are not alone. I know that everybody else's family looks perfect on Instagram, okay? Uh, like, like this picture of a dad posing with his son uh, shows up on the screen. It's like, that doesn't happen. Like, what's he saying? Like, okay, son, point over there and smile. And he's like, what do you want me to point at, dad? Doesn't matter, just smile. And this, this next one's a picture of family movie night, right? Uh, everyone's perfect on the couch. That's fake. That didn't happen. There's, there should be popcorn everywhere. Mom yelling at the kids for dropping the popcorn in between the seat cushions. And they all argued about which movie they should watch anyway. Uh, it's not candid at all. When we look at our screens and we're stressed and worried about our family issues, we almost subconsciously think that every other family is like this and just picture perfect in every way. But guess what? They're not, okay? Their families are just as messy as yours and just as messy as mine. And the Bible is full of messy families, families with big, big, big problems. And it won't take you very long to find these families. Just read the first book of the Bible, book of Genesis. First, we have Adam and Eve. We meet them. Peace, harmony in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. And uh, everything's great until some snake shows up, right? and ruins everything, and then the blame game happens. He's blaming her, they're blaming God, and discord happens in the garden. Then they have a couple of kids, Cain and Abel. Talk about sibling, sibling rivalry, right? Anyone know how long, um, did, how, how long did Cain hate his brother? As long as he was able. As long as he was able. It's a Bible joke. Not a very good one, but 
In fact, he killed his brother. And he was separated from his family. Then in chapter 6 of the first book of the Bible, we meet Noah. Noah, in chapter 9, Noah gets drunk and passes out naked. One of his sons stumbles upon this, goes and tells his brothers, Dad's passed out naked. They put a blanket over him. Noah wakes up, curses his son. Chapter 12, we meet Abraham. Abraham pimped out his wife twice. <laughs> True. Then he slept with his slave girl after his wife asked him to. That's dysfunctional. Then he, had, he has two grandkids, Jacob and Esau. They were twin brothers. I have an affection for twins because I myself am a twin. Uh, and these twins were fighting out of the womb. And they competed in everything. And Jacob and his mom actually tricked their father, Isaac, into stealing the blessing that was rightfully Esau's to give it to Jacob. Then Jacob and Esau become enemies, and their tribes eventually become enemies. Then there's Joseph's family. That's a crazy family, okay? He had 11 brothers, and the brothers were a crazy bunch. Not only did they make an entire tribe get circumcised, but once they were circumcised, they decided to go in and kill all the men of the village while they were healing from being snipped. And they also throw Joseph into a well and left him for dead. Okay. The Bible is full of messy families. Does it help put some things in perspective in your own households right now? Uh, anybody get thrown into a well recently by their brothers or sisters? This is all in the very first book of the Bible. It's full of messy families. This church is full of messy families. The whole world is full of messy families. You've heard it before. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. Here's the good news. God put you and your family on purpose for a purpose. God put you in your family on purpose for a purpose. When family is done right, nothing will bring you greater joy. When family is done wrong, nothing will bring you greater pain. Has this been your experience as well? We bear the scars. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, a very familiar verse, it'll be on the screen, says this, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's a great promise keepers verse. Anybody remember promise keepers? Gathering of men dedicated to lead their homes in Christ-likeness. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We all want that. No matter, no matter if you have kids or not, we all want our households to fall in love with Jesus and make a difference for his kingdom in our world. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We have good intentions. Then we drive to church and fight and argue and discipline and wonder if we're doing anything right. You see, there's a, this gap between where you are and where you want to be. It'll be on the screens here. There's a gap between where you are and where you want to be as a family. It, it, the difference between what is ideal and what is real. This is us. This should be us. And hear this, over time, if we, were, if we refuse to address that gap, it will widen. If we just hope 
things will get better, the gap will continue to widen. The gap between where we are and where God has called us to be as a family. It takes intentional effort. Don't settle for reality. Strive for better. This morning, I believe that God wants to give us some things that will address this gap. That will help move us from where we are to where God wants us to be. The gap between where we want to be as a family and where we actually are. And some of this will be more applicable to parents who have kids. It's the only kind of parents who are. Um, to parents. It does, however, apply to everybody, no matter what your family context is. So whether you're single, married, kids, no kids, grandkids, we all have a desire for our families and our homes to love God and love people. Uh, this applies to all of us. First things first. Number one is this. You've got to live it. You've got to live it. You want the kind of family that loves God, loves others? You have to live it first. And the best way for our families to learn to love Jesus is to see Jesus in our own lives. Bar none, there is no greater witness, and there's no greater way to lead your family to love God and love people than by you being that example. It's the best example. You could take them to church every single day. You could pray with them every morning. You could make them read their Bibles. You could do all kinds of things. But the best way to have your family love God and love people as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's for you yourself to live personally. How are you doing with that? I want my kids to see Jesus in me in the way that I love them, in the way that I love their mom, in the way that I love everyone else. Sarah and I often talk about our desire to have, for our kids to not have a judgmental bone in their body. No matter how someone looks, no, no matter how someone acts, no, no matter what someone believes, that has no bearing on how we should treat them. We want our kids to know that and to live it. Sarah and I better not be judgmental. They follow us. Our kids better see that in us. One day all of our kids will grow up and they may start living like money is everything. And we will lament and we will say, but I told them and I taught them that money isn't everything. But your example showed them that money was everything. Here's a, a huge trend that's affecting our families. This will be on the screen as well. The temptation is to make our kids experience rich and relationship poor. Experience, rich in experience, bad at relationships. Now, we don't do this uh, on purpose. And, and actually, we have good hearts, right? We want our kids to maybe experience the things that we didn't get a chance to experience in our own childhood. And so we want to give them everything that we can. Give them all the experiences that we didn't get as a child. But sometimes, often, especially in this culture, that comes at the expense of relationships. Experience rich. Get them in all the right activities. Get all the best grades. Get all, into all the right schools. All the best programs. All the best toys all too often to the neglect of relationships. Experience rich, relationship poor. And here's what we know as adults. When you get to your 30s, 40s, and 50s, it is your ability to have wonderful, loving relationships that actually informs your success as a person in society. Not gymnastics. Uh, not all the activities that you were involved in. 
It won't be their sports when your kids turn 30 that they dropped on you. It will be from their relationships. And experiences are wonderful. I'm not trying to downplay experiences. I think they're great and wonderful. But our t temptation is to provide an experience-rich life at the expense of relationships. Everybody gets to gymnastics and the ball game on time. Everyone gets tuition paid, but we never have dinner together. And we're busy, 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 but I can't tell you the last time that I looked at my child's eyes for five minutes and had a conversation with them. We often measure our family life by our kids' activities or their GPA, but we rarely measure the depth of their relationship with God, their relationship with their own family, and their relationship with other people. We do the same with God. We add God or church to their list of experiences. It's just another one of the countless activities that I want my son or daughter to be plugged into, so let's give them a little bit of church. It's not Pilates. It's not gymnastics. God is not just one more thing so that your kids have an experience rich childhood. God's everything. It, it should, he should inform everything. Then when we got them busy, 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 we've given them everything, but we haven't given ourselves fully. Then we try and overcompensate. Sometimes it plays out like this. Mom and dad don't have time for little Jimmy. Uh, they're busy providing everything. And so little Jimmy acts out at school, gets in trouble. Now uh, mom and dad find out about it, or upset about it, and uh, now they bring a lawyer. It's like, what? Uh, you shouldn't have done that to J Jimmy. Jimmy's his name, right? Yeah, Jimmy, you should have done that, and you're getting a, a lawyer involved in this thing, overcompensating for you not having that relationship that should have been there. Another place we compensate is with is with discipline. We either over-discipline or we under-discipline. I'm not that involved, so when my kids misbehave, I want to constantly be good cop. So they come running to me when they're misbehaving. Or we feel bad that we're not that involved in their lives, and so we over-discipline. Well, I gotta really throw it down now. I gotta really throw it down because I gotta make up for my lack and I'm gonna really punish them. Throw down the iron fist. This throws our parental discipline all out of whack. One of the ways we do this is by putting our kids on restriction or grounding them. And I just want to clarify something real quick. Doesn't work. <laughs> Didn't work for you, right? I don't think there's a time when you look back at your life and you go, you know what? I was heading this way. And then my parents took my phone away for two weeks. And boy, that did it. Changed my life forevermore. I am never going back to the way I was. Doesn't happen. We often overreact because we're under-involved. And there's balance here. And some of you might be thinking, Pastor John, Stick to the Bible. Don't be mingling with my parenting. Now, I hear you, okay? But here's how we often think. Just because we can make a baby doesn't mean we can manage a baby. Or we think, well, I was a child once, so I know how to parent a child. That line of thinking isn't very smart. That's like saying, I had surgery once. So if, if called upon... I could probably perform some surgery with some great skills. There are principles in scriptures that 
Help us lead our families to follow Jesus, become the kind of people that make a great difference in our world. And I want to point us to there. Uh, let me explain it this way. Imagine you had three dials, okay? Three dials. One of these dials represents, uh, the, and they all represent the strength of relationships that we have. The first dial is your relationship with your parents. The second dial, your relationship with God. And the third dial, your relationship with others outside the home. Now imagine uh, uh, your kids grow up, you grow up, and if you could go back in time, and then adjust these, this dial, each dial, however you want, in certain circumstances, to make you maybe make a better decision, right? So you're tempted to go a certain route, so you go back in time and you dial up God a little more, and then you make the right decision. Or uh, if, you're, if you're, you dial up your parents a little bit, well, if my, if my wish for my parents was a little bit better, then I wouldn't have made that decision either. What you would find is, as you go back in time, you eliminate most of the awful, horrendous, bad decisions that you made throughout your life and the consequences. If I just had a, a better life-giving relationship with Jesus in that moment, I wouldn't have made that decision. Or there was this one person in your life that, that kind of led you astray, you dialed back that relationship. My question for us is this. Why wait for a time machine for our families? Why don't we adjust those dials right now? Why don't we dial up our relationship with God and our relationship with our kids? Dial up the right influences in their lives. Let's increase those dials now. Whether you have kids or not, let's get those dialed in. Let's not wait for a time machine. It's probably not going to happen. Ephesians 6.4 says this. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the Lord training and instruction. Bring them up. This Greek word for bring them up uh, is actually the word nurture. Nurture. It's a relational term. To nourish. To build up. It's a relationally rich word. To coach. To guide. To invest. Invest. Coach. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. But acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. The good news is this, is we've got a partner in the parenting process, God. We point them to God, and he will make their path straight. That's what we desire for our families. It's all about relationship. It's all about relationship. In the early stages, and, and I'm kind of in this stage right now, in the early stages of parenting, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old, and uh, it's about size and position, which means control, right? I can control them. I could put them in a room. I could strap them to the, in the car seat in the back. Uh, I can make them, force them there to eat something because I have size and I have control. But eventually, you won't, right? Eventually, they get bigger, and you won't have size and control. In fact, now, I am much more able to pick up my mom and put her in the car seat in the back than she is able to put me in a car seat and put me in the back. Uh, they get bigger. Eventually, and I want you to, to notice this to be on screen, you have to change from size and position parenting to relationship and influence. You have to move from control to relationship and influence. And what happens is this. Sometimes we never make the transition. I, I've seen it a lot working with teenagers for uh, 11 years. Some parents don't make the transition. They want to still control their teenagers. 
They still want to control their young adults. And they never left that position size control. And sometimes that takes, uh, 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 it works to the detriment of your children. Now, as you try to control them, as you try and use your size, I am your father. As we try and throw down on our kids as they get older, we begin to lose influence in relationship. We have to transition. We have to transition. We see in the life of Jesus, his example in parenting. Prayer is the parenting principle endorsed by Jesus. Prayer. Prayer is the parenting principle endorsed by Jesus. Jesus says curiously nothing about parenting, right? He doesn't say if you should do a bottle or if you should breastfeed. He doesn't say if you should do public school, private school, homeschool. Doesn't say a word about it. Should you spank your kids or should you use time out? Jesus doesn't address it. None of these questions are addressed by Jesus. But what we do have is three stories of parents bringing their kids to Jesus in prayer. It's as if Jesus is highlighting, I, I don't got all the parenting techniques for you, but I do have this one thing. Bring your kids to me. Bring your kids to Jesus. And there are three instances mentioned in the Gospels of parents approaching their, uh, Jesus about their child. One is of a mother who storms out of a Canaanite hills, crying out, mercy, master, son of David, my daughter is tormented by an evil spirit. Falling before the feet of Jesus. Then there was a father of a, of a seizure-tormented boy. He sought help first from the disciples, and then he seeks help from Jesus. And he says, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. And then there's Jairus, whose 12-year-old daughter is dying at home. And he goes to Jesus. And in each of these instances, these desperate parents are in a way holding their child with one hand, and extending the other hand towards Jesus. That's the picture that Jesus wants to give us of parenting. They're at the end of their rope. And note this, in every single desperate plea, without exception, Jesus responds to their prayers. Not one time did Jesus say, sorry, mom and dad, I don't have time for the request that you have for your child. Got a lot of things I got to deal with here. Doesn't happen. And in the story of Jairus, Jesus just gets off this boat off the Sea of Galilee, and he's greeted by crowds of people, shouting, no doubt, yelling, help us, save us, do this, do that. And out of all these cries, he hears the cries of Jairus, this father whose 12-year-old daughter is dying at home. And Jesus says, you. And he goes to Jairus amidst all the other needs, and he responds. And he heals his daughter. He heard the prayers of the parent for their child, and he still hears the prayers of parents for their children. He hears your prayers. Your child might be all grown up right now. He still hears your prayers. Note to all you panicking parents, Jesus will not turn away when you ask for help with your kids. His track record shows us. He invites us to come to him on behalf of our children. Bring Christ your child. The Gospels don't just tell us what Jesus did. They tell us what Jesus does. 
And we see these parents in desperation crying out for their kids, and Jesus responds. I want to invite Stephen and the worship band to come up. So I'll close with this. I pray for my kids a lot, every day. No one prays for my kids more than my wife Sarah does. When I get to heaven, I truly believe I'm going to ask the Lord, how could my kids have so much joy and love of life? It's going to be due to the prayers of their mom. No one prays for our kids more than Sarah does. She will never stop praying for them. There's something supernatural about a mother's prayer for her children. Something unique. Bring your kids to Jesus. Before they were yours, they were his. And let me say this. Even as they are yours, they are his. Bring your kids to Jesus. God, I pray in Jesus' name that Man, that you would, you would bring to the surface the things that we need to change about our family lives to address this gap. God, I pray that, in, that, that you would move in our homes and our families, God. We need you, Jesus. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would draw us nearer to you. As a church, as, as a household, we need you. God, let us bring our kids to you in your name. Feed